Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the estimated 3 million people whose lives were sensibly taken under the regime of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia. We still remember you. This is See Here. Episode 64 of the See Here podcast. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. And joining me are my two esteemed colleagues over in Bath, Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. And over in Brantford, Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. It feels like it's been ages since we've recorded. For you. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's true. I wasn't wasn't around in April. So, yes, it feels ages since all three of us. Thank you very much for uh, covering up for me in April. No, no, it was our pleasure. And I want to thank Jim Lamort for uh, jumping in and helping us sort out the Norwegian black metal scene. Thanks very much, Jimmy. Much appreciated. And we'll have you back on where all four of us can shoot the shit about a film. That's going to happen. And we know that you have a particular request. This will happen, but we need to make a few arrangements. So the purpose of our gathering today is to discuss a documentary from 2015. And this is a leftover request from last year from Tyler Kennedy. Sorry it's taken us this long to get (laughs) around to this film, Tyler. I really thought that we needed to do a lot of reading up, but in the end, this film was fairly self-contained. The film that we're talking about is Don't Think I've Forgotten Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll, documentary by John Perozzi. What we'll do is we'll go play the trailer now, and then we'll come on and discuss a really fascinating film and a really fascinating, hopefully not forgotten, aspect of rock and roll. Okay, you're listening to C here. We'll be back in a moment. There is a saying in Cambodia, music is the soul of a nation. Ils sont très soudés, les musiciens, les chanteurs. On sait toutes sortes de musiques modernes chez nous. I was not a shy kid, you know. I was like, just give me the music, I'll dance. This is so cool, it's my generation. I was ready for more, and all of a sudden, it was all gone. We did get involved in bombing a a neutral country. I can't figure out what we're doing over here in the first place. In Cambodia or Vietnam? Anywhere, Cambodia or Vietnam. knew Cambodia was going to be a revolutionary country and not contaminated by the West. 
Si vous voulez éliminer la société, les anciennes valeurs, bah, il faut commencer par éliminer les artistes. Parce que les artistes sont influents. Les artistes sont proches du peuple. feeding the cat. Hope it doesn't go and knock on my door again. Anyway, you're listening to episode 64 of C here, and we're here to discuss the documentary from 2015, directed by John Perozzi, Don't Think I've Forgotten, Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll. The Wikipedia summary, Don't Think I've Forgotten, is a 2015 documentary film about Cambodian rock music in the 1960s and 1970s, before the Khmer Rouge and the Cambodian genocide. And that's pretty succinct, but pretty much what it encapsulates. Now, before we sort of get into it in any depth, Tim, I know that this is a film that you had seen a few years ago. So what were your initial thoughts when you originally saw it? Well, I was gutted, to tell you the truth, because, you know, after actually visiting some of these places in Batambang, Pen on Pen, and, you know, Siem Reap, it's really funny because when you see how thriving Cambodia was in the late 50s and the 60s, and you see what they thought they were destined to be, and you see how beautiful it really was. Still, you know, while the French had somewhat, you know, control, and then you go there now and you see the remnants, and it's almost post-apocalyptic. And seeing that in the film, not to get deep into it, but there's a specific moment in the film that still gives me chills where they actually show what Cambodia was and then they go into black and white photographs of what it became when you just see like the empty husk of pen on pen after Pol Pot rolled in and cleared everybody out of the cities and it's just like this it's like somebody dropped some type of bomb it just gutted me to see how happy it's almost like a relationship this whole thing where the beginning is you know people full of love and joy and hope And then everything is shattered on the rocks. And then the end of it is kind of trying to overcome and trying to kind of compensate and, and the whole process of dealing with the suffering, you know, or kind of the PTSD of the whole situation, you know. But like I say, I almost look at it like a relationship, you know, the beginning... You get these people deep in love with their country and deep in love with music and deep in love with all of this. And then all of a sudden it just turns into this nightmare situation that you can't get out of. And then it's just the outcome and you pick up the pieces and whatever is left and you try to reassemble a life, reassemble the culture, reassemble the country. I think like a lot of us comfortable Westerners, I, I was kind of uh, shamefully, you know, I knew that, you know, things had gone on in Cambodia. I'd heard of the genocide and so on, obviously in Pol Pot, but I, I didn't actually know the specific details. And, you know, I find this film to be just hugely emotionally affecting and eye-opening, you know, kind of for the reasons that Tim just said, Really, I mean, it does go into quite a bit of detail about what happened, about how the Khmer Rouge uh, kind of came to power and what happened subsequently. And it's uh, it's just heartbreaking. It really is. Again, as Tim was saying, I, I didn't realise that Cambodia was this kind of beautiful, thriving, almost idyllic kind of place in the in the late 50s into the right. 60s. It was very metropolitan. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it just looked wonderful. And the music, you know, I was aware of this stuff. I had, I'd heard maybe the odd track on compilations and so on, but I'd never really kind of dug into it in any detail. So the, most of this was kind of new to me. Even the stuff that, you know, I'm kind of ashamed that I didn't know about was, was new to me. This was a very interesting and kind of wing watch. Like you, 
I didn't really know a whole lot about the whole Pol Pot regime and what led up to it, so I was doing quite a fair bit of reading. And there's a lot of stuff that I read about that they don't show in the film, and it's probably wise, because for the first hour or so, they want to focus on the music and what made Cambodia such a beautiful and thriving and culturally embracing sort of place with just little hints as to what was happening. But basically, you know, what I'd been reading about was after French colonialism had finished in Prince Sihanouk, you know, he he was no angel himself, but the film Mm -hmm. wants to show that he was someone who embraced culture and he embraced music. And that's the irony and a big, the biggest kick in the ass is that he was the one who actually said that all departments in the government had to have their own orchestras, right? Yeah, yeah. And he was the one that was pushing that music has to be everywhere, the culture has to be everywhere. And yet he goes around and sides with the Cameroos, you know, I mean, and he was duped, you have to admit it. They wind up eliminating everything that he was promoting. I mean, I think that's the biggest kick in the ass to me. So if I I get this right, I don't think he actually sided with the Khmer Rouge until he'd been deposed after the the military Yeah, he was in exile, wasn't he, at that point? Yeah, he was in exile. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. but I'm just saying he was duped, you know, because he, like he said in the film, like people didn't even know that Pol Pot was their leader. When the Khmer Rouge, you know, when they'd sort of rolled in and taken over, he was, instead of having anything to do with the running of the country, he was just prisoner in his own mansion, wasn't he? Right, right. But what I found interesting in my reading, and I think, like, I read this great quote that said that Pol Pot and, if I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Nguyen Chia, who is, I think, what was he called, brother number two, the two of them were middle-class guys who'd been educated in French universities. Right, right. And then came back to bring extreme agrarian socialism to Cambodia. That's that's another thing, too, that kicks my ass, right? When I was in Cambodia, and I'd only been there for two weeks, you know, like visiting friends that were living there that were teaching, but I learned so much, like, just by asking people questions, you know, and I sat in a coffee shop in Phnom Penh with a fella, older fella, one day, and he said to me, he said, just by the fact that you have glasses on your face, you'd be dead. You would be considered an intellectual because of the fact that you wear glasses you read because you have glasses and therefore you're an intellectual what kicks my ass is the fact that Pol Pot and his cronies go to outside of the country to get educated to become intellectuals yeah they come back and they basically choke it out of everybody else well that's how you rule though isn't it you get rid of the the thinking people the idea people as the film sort of makes out that if you're a businessman if you're a theologian or if you're an artist you are capable of coming up with your own thoughts and exactly. it's it's not so much that you're an intellectual that they objected to it's the fact that you're going to have different thoughts to our thoughts we are now well, in control you cannot to them, object to our thoughts right but to them an intellectual was the the person that could was the free thinker is right. as what you're saying like that was the idea was that anybody who was an intellectual or anybody who you know had a half a brain in their head could basically steer left to center they wanted to go in their own way <laughs> There's a long story that goes between the time that French colonialism finished, the rule of Prince Sihanouk and how he encouraged culture, the war in Vietnam spilling into Cambodia, the military overthrow of Prince Sihanouk in, I think it was 1970, then Pol Pot taking over with Year Zero in 1975 and his rule between 75 and 79 and the murder of millions of people. So the film, I guess, especially in the second half of the film, because it's unavoidable, they do talk a lot about what happened during the Pol Pot rule, but quite wisely, I think, for the purpose of letting the focus be on the music and all that made Cambodia so culturally vibrant and exciting up until that point, they focus a lot on the musicians. And probably, I guess if you'd ask John Perozzi, he could say, look, there are tons of books, tons of documentaries out there that explain that side of it. I'm electing to tell a different story, so we tell what we need. That's not what this film is about, is it? No, no, the problem is is that the whole subject matter is just so dense. There's just, just so much to this. You're just looking at, for example, like Motown in Detroit, 
you could talk about the whole United States, but you right. just have to focus on Motown, right? It's so hard because when Pol Pot and these thugs roll in, it's like music, politics, everything's all one and the same. But like you say, he wisely kind of veers away from getting into all the deep uh, think politic and uh, gets into this focus on the music. As, I said, as you said, Morris, he does a very good job of just dropping little hints, little news reports and things like that throughout right. the first sort of half or three quarters of the film if you know anything about history you know things are going to get bad and they're going to deal with that like i say he does a good job of kind of foreshadowing what is going to happen without it being like that one thing i really love the way he foreshadows with this documentary is how he actually uses the lyrics in the music and half of these songs were not written about these things but it just so seems that a lot of the songs that he chooses to as the bed that he play underneath these scenes and what they're talking about the lyrics just nail it 100%. I can't remember which song. There was something like particularly late in the film that may have done that. I think that was more like in the late 60s, you know, just when, right. and we'll, we'll sort of get to the development of the music over the period of time, but just like where in Western society, lyrics were getting to be more about sticking the finger to the man or objection right. to what was happening with America being in Vietnam and youth wanting to have a voice. So there was something of that, particularly with, say, the music of uh, Yol Oloron. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. They said that he was something of a humorist, of a right. smart aleck, and he could write a, a, songs that were maybe objecting to policy, but also he was just writing smart-ass songs that were right. maybe you know, disrespectful of the previous generation, which is not something that in the early days something someone like Sin Sismuth would have. I was thinking in particular, there's one scene in the film where after the king has been deposed, I forget the female singer where she's singing, you were a traitor, you broke my heart. And she's just talking about heartbreak, but it's really effective when you see the king being hauled out and she's singing this song of people in the street. I like that. The other point I wanted to make about this film, we've already gone and said that the second half of the film focuses a lot more on what was happening with the military coup and with Pol Pot's regime. But even there, the music still comes into it because we've got the first half of the film where music, the development as being a cultural entity and everyone's love of popular music and the artist who performed it but then there's the contrast under Pol Pot's regime where music is being used in a uh, propagandist pro is that a word propagandistic sort of way <laughs> give duty to our country we will serve the needs of the people jingoistic yeah. is basically what it is but one thing you wouldn't hear anybody singing was war good god what is good for absolutely nothing now that, that guy you know is gone long gone Tim, we had a yak on Skype about a week ago or so, and you said something really interesting about the nature of music being politicised. In the West, we often sort of think of political music as songs that are protesting against a government or some act of solidarity with an oppressed people. But you said that the very fact that there were songs that were being made like in the early 70s under the military regime, like this still before Pol Pot came in, the fact that people right. were then, even while, while Pol Pot, they made this very good point that while some of the performers who were hugely popular in the 60s were then sent to work in the fields, they said that the one thing that could keep them going that they couldn't be hauled away from was while they were working, they would sing these old songs to themselves. And that was their political act of defiance. The funny thing is that unless you silence a voice, that voice is power. You look at back in American slavery, you know, where they used to sing spirituals working in the fields. It's the same thing. 
these slave owners, they could put these people under the end of a whip and make them toil in the field, but they couldn't take away their power because these people could still sing. They could still express their discontent. And that's what happened even in Cambodia, even though subversive as it was, just in the act of being able to just open your mouth and utter certain things, you're able to basically, you know, stick your hand up in the air and, you know, give them the bird and say, I'm not happy with what's going down. Let's talk a bit about the music itself because that's really what made me smile and I'm sure it made you two guys smile as well. One thing that I thought was interesting, there's a large part of the film where they're talking about the man who I think they believe was the father of modern Cambodian music, Sin Sizemuth. If you think about music in the West and, I mean, okay, yeah, sure, Frank Sinatra is given a lot of credit and a lot of love amongst certain types of fans, but I think rock and roll came along and was attempting to sweep out that generation of music that had just come before it. Sin Sizemuth, while I'm not suggesting he was necessarily Cambodia's Frank Sinatra, but he started out as a crooner. And obviously, as music went on and changed, he decided, well, I want to be part of that. But I just find it interesting that the angle that the film takes is not modern performers had to sweep away the crooners. It's like everyone got respect. And that's so different from if we were looking at a documentary about the history of American or British rock and roll. If you're making a British film, you wouldn't necessarily be including musical artists or the closest you might get would be Lonnie Donegan. Skiffle. The skiffle would be the start of it. It's still not full on rock and roll, but that's as close as you'd get. Whereas this movie is celebrating everything. I think that there's quite a, a kind of Western way of looking at things though, isn't it? The, the kind of canon and how rock and roll comes along and sweeps away all the uh, the crooners and the what have you beforehand. And how punk then comes along and kind of knocks rock and roll out of the way and so on and so forth. It's very Western, but other countries and other parts of the world, they don't follow our musical development development in a sense it you know what makes sense to us isn't going to make sense to them and i guess in this case as far as sin sisamouth is concerned it's all music this right. is just the current thing and so i'm moving into that because this is what's current and people like it not a uh, fuck off granddad kind of thing it's no uh... no i think that in other parts of the world they've taken the louis armstrong aspect in the sense that they say there's two kinds of music there's good music and there's bad music yeah yeah exactly and i think that you know in the west everybody throws labels on things to claim ownership the thing is like I've always said, like when you talk about punk, how much more punk can you get when you're actually writing stuff that's anti-establishment in, in an environment where you could actually lose your life over it? Yeah, yeah. Dylan, as much as, you know, I like Dylan, for him to sing Blowing in the Wind, there wasn't any retribution. There wasn't any uh, negative outcome for Dylan in particular. Yeah, he wasn't going to end up in an unmarked grave somewhere. Was right, he, exactly. Like? He wasn't going to be lynched for what he did. That's where I see it re- being really revolutionary and the fact that the beginning of the film actually says that there's an old saying in Cambodia that music is kind of like the heart of a country of a nation you know that that music is kind of the lifeblood of any society it sounds cliche to say it but that's what at the core this film is about it's about the power of music and it really is because you had the political opponents saying right you are forbidden to do that sort of thing but right. music and ideas made people feel wonderful Wonderful, as was evidenced by Prince Sernok encouraging it and having government departments devoted to it and encouraging Sin Sizemuth, as they say earlier on in the film, to come and work in the Royal Orchestra. And he learnt a whole new way of singing that he had not previously done. Coming to your point, Tim, you know, saying just imagine if you were to be doing a, a documentary about the history of Motown. So my thought is that you couldn't do it justice in a movie. You should have had like a 10 part mini series. Oh, yeah. And really, watching that I just wanted more and more and I thought wow this is only a 90 minute film damn it I wish that they could have like a 10 part series let's have an episode just on Sin Sizemuth and another one on Ros Serisuthia and you guys were saying well they did things differently to western countries and yet they were taking a lot of their inspiration yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah well, western well, music was... but they were putting their 
spin on it, and that's what made right. it so exciting. Well, that's one thing that's so unique in their situation was like you know you basically there was three primary influences that were coming in. I mean, like you got the French aspect with like Johnny Holiday and all right. of that, and then Cliff Richard and the Shadows, and then with the Americans in with Vietnam with Armed Forces Radio. I love that one aspect of the film where you know you you know they're playing Otis and he's singing Everybody Needs Somebody, and you know it just it really fit the film. Like it was really a great moment to go back for a second. I kind of mold over something that we just talked about a couple of minutes ago about the idea that everybody got props in Cambodia. Everybody got respect. I'm no authority on, I don't know jack shit. Okay. But from living in Asia for a number of years, the one thing that I really gleaned out of my experience is that there's a whole thing about the respect of your ancestors, the respect of your family, the respect of your elders. You're just an echo of something that was dropped a long time ago, and you know it. Whereas in the West, no one really wants to know about any of the past and anything that your dad did or your granddad did or your great-granddad did. It's all forgotten. In Asia, your blood is not your own. You carry it. You carry on the traditions and the ways. And this is one thing now with the new century and everything coming on. There's a disconnect for a lot of the older people that feel kind of heartbroken because a lot of the younger generation aren't willing anymore to really carry on the old traditional folk songs in many countries and the traditional dances and the traditional ways. And they're trying to continue to promote that, right? But I think that was something that was really prevalent in Cambodia was that they did carry on their traditional dance and the traditional songs and that everybody did recognize what the previous generations did. That's an aspect that is really, really significant in Asian culture. You can really hear that in a lot of the music in the film because even though it is taking these other influences and even though it's, you know, outright aping Western songs at points, there's still something very definitely Cambodian about it. There's something very unique, whether it be a vocal style or, you know, a kind of phrase on the guitar or even the production in, on some of the songs, things like that. It just, you could tell it's part of a long line. That makes sense. In Asian culture, if, if somebody's remotely related to you, you call them uncle or yeah, aunt, yeah, or, yeah. or auntie. And, and the one fellow saying, you know, they, they called me Uncle Solo and I was only 14 years old. <laughs> You know, and he's just basically trying to ape Johnny Kidd and the Pirates or the Shadows. And, and this is the thing, man, that you really have to wrap your head around the absolute lack of technology that they had. I mean, today, you know, with our Spotify and our just everything is instantaneous. I mean, back then, there was no cassettes. There was just vinyl. I like the idea that they with the, the one fellow was talking about in Pen on Pen where all the cyclo, with the, with the woman was talking about cyclo, which were kind of like almost like tuk-tuks or like the, uh, the rickshaw drivers. So how they were all hanging out in front of the radio station because they put a big speaker out on the on the wall outside. So this is where these guys would go and relax because they didn't even have access to an actual transistor radio. A lot of these people. Mm. But it was still being almost like biologically transmitted, the music. It was getting to everybody by hook or by crook, by one way or another, and they needed it. But today, that's the irony, is we have access to a million things that we could go out and grab in, you know, in a yeah. second, and we don't. And none of but, it sticks. Yeah. And none of it sticks. But yeah. these people, you know, they would all go and hang outside around a local place or like a local radio station where they would play this music, and that's how they got it. Or else there was like merch marine or all kinds of different ways that the people would broadcast but that that's how they got it or when the one fellow talks about the first actual music record store in pen on pen where the guy started to buy yeah, vinyl yeah. it was just i love the fact that somebody says at some point that uh, they're talking about the bayon band right which was you know the kind of the cambodian equivalent of the shadows or something right, like the that. surf guitar yeah yeah yeah, yeah they were called baxi cham krong right baxi cham krong
I sort of see that as like in the context of the film anyway. They were the next evolution from at least how Sin Sizemuth and Chun Malay and Rosseri Sothia. They started out as the crooners. Of course, mind you, their own music evolved over time, which is amazing. I mean, you couldn't really imagine Frank Sinatra doing something remotely rock and roll, but these people did. And, but, you know, Baxi Chem Krong, I think the uh, guitar player said, oh, yeah, we were watching footage of Hank in the Shadows and you know, Cliff Richard. Even that evolved. I think the guitarist from that left and started up in another band. And then as the film progresses, they start up this other band, Drakkar. <laughs> Which is very much taking its lead from Otis Redding and uh, Wilson Pickett. And, yeah, and the, yeah. oh, my, oh my God, I, got, I just got to sort of chime in here. I've made note of a few songs that I really, really liked in the film. There were a few songs, I listened to this album, which I know you were a big fan of, Tim, called Cambodian Rocks. Yeah. Uh, Tim. And I sort of like that album in a way a lot better than the soundtrack for the film. And the soundtrack of the film is great, but the title is completely accurate Cambodian Rocks. And Sin Sizemuth, just to show his evolution, he does a song that's not on the soundtrack, but it's on this Cambodian Rocks album that translates as I Love Petite Girl. basically uh, whatever the lyrics are I don't know but it's basically him taking Black Magic Woman by Santana and right. him doing his own lyrics on that and oh, that's um, amazing you've got to just hand it over to the musicians on this because the guitar player has got incredible chops and these guys they're the equal of anyone in Santana it's absolutely amazing but just Right. Cynicismuth didn't change, at least to my ears, his vocal approach from those early crooning type songs to what he's doing here. He's still singing the way how he does. But just the fact that he decided, oh, well, that's what people are listening to and I rather like that, I'll do it, didn't sound the least bit like he was just trying to jump on a financial bandwagon. He was just doing, well, well this is where music's going, this is what i got to do. Right. On the Cambodian Rocks <laughs> album, there's a, it's not very subtle, but there's an actual kind of a version of Booker T and the MG's Hip Hogger. Right, yeah, yeah, that's uh, by uh, and the, Liv Took, Rom Susuk. Right, Liv, yeah, Rom Susuk, and, and he's actually singing lyrics over it, where there's no lyrics in the original song. It's almost like cooking, you know, where you're taking uh, a recipe from somewhere else and putting a local spin on it. You're putting your own spice in it, you know? And I love that. And then they got to a point where they actually said, listen, we don't have to be a mimic of, of these groups. We can actually go closer to our own culture and take the old traditional songs or say, take some of the traditional rhythms and mix in a little bit of the West. But then they were leaning into more confidence with their own styles, with their own music. The initial excitement of hearing, you know, Hendrix or hearing Otis Redding or any of this stuff had worn off, I think. And they started to say, look, you know, we can get into our, our own. We can find our own footing instead of just kind of sitting in the shadows and going oh yeah that's really cool man i want to try to i got to ask you something did his voice sound to you like screaming jay hawkins in a higher register absolutely absolutely <laughs> I, know, I, I believe like, he's been compared to james brown but i just really got the screaming jay hawkins feel yeah, about him in cambodia let's just say that certain substances have yet to be illegalized you know when you hear some of the recordings it just sounds like ah, some of these guys are just completely off of their ass man <laughs> 
<laughs> like it, it just sounds like some of these guys are just going gonzo. They just put on so much distortion in some of the recordings, or it's just it's just hilarious. The first time I heard this, it sounded like Caveman, like Caveman Primal Stomp. Some of the stuff. Big part of the charm, though, isn't it? Right, absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know if it was because of lack of the recording equipment, or these guys getting into a little bit of the local, like you know, juice, or like I don't know what it was. There's something really raw about the Cambodian rock that that makes it, you know, they put their definite stamp on it, but it's just, you know, it's like, woo, like this stuff, this stuff is really groovy. It's got a bite to it. I like to think that unlike the West, what was developing certainly in the late 60s, I'd like to imagine that these songs were recorded fairly spontaneously. There was no slaving over getting right. a drum sound right or we're going to take six months to record this album right. or, or anything right, like this. Right, right, Just get a right. bunch of people in a studio who have amazing musician chops and vocal technique and they just bang 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 put them out now you guys have to understand something too that i think that is important with this as well is that you know about the cargo cult phenomena well like in the south pacific they used to have these cargo planes that would fly long hauls and sometimes they'd crash on these tropical islands in the south pacific and the and the natives they don't they'd find boxes of food or goods and then they'd find you know dead pilots or whatever and then they thought they were like gods that fell out of the sky so then they basically try to set up the radio and set everything up so they can get another one to come down to give them treasures and rewards and stuff so what happened was anthropologists or sociologists have said there's this thing kind of like a cargo cult phenomena where you get inklings of something but you really can't quite wrap your head around what it is so you you basically try to mimic it the best you can but even by trying to mimic it you're actually putting your own spin on it mm. making it better in a weird way mm. you're you're doing it in a local way that you know how you know you're not completely filled in and exactly able to duplicate it 100 percent you know the outside influence but you're trying to do the best you can so in a way there are kind of semi rules but in another way there's no rules because there's no rules in some ways you take it into to interpretation into places that no one ever anticipated. I mean, like, for example, not to, you know, veer off of what we're talking about, but, like, you look in Japan, like, you know, like a band like Guitar Wolf. Yes. Okay. Yeah. You know, and where they took American rock and roll and they just ran with it, man. Like, just beyond. <laughs> That's why today, like a lot of American music aficionados or Western music aficionados say, well, we go and do something and then the Japanese or the Germans have done it better or somebody else has done it better, right? It's because of this kind of, like I say, like a cargo cult phenomena where people they really don't... They pick it up and run with it. Right, yeah, they yeah. pick it up and run with it because they don't understand 100% of initially what it really is all about. And I think that's what makes the Cambodian rock and roll so beautiful, if that and, makes any sense. And I think John Perazzi has, by and large, he's done a fantastic job in conveying that exactly how Cambodian musicians and culture as a whole thrived in that 60s period because they were taking things and making it their own. You never got this yeah. sense of, yeah. oh, they're just copying. Bernie, you said like a few minutes ago they were putting their own vocal technique. And I think a lot of that uniqueness compared to singers or, or to, compared to the songs of the West was that vocal technique. And it's sort of operatic in a way. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, it's, but, got, it's a very sort of classicist way of, it's, you know, yeah, you, you can tell that it's something that people have been doing for years. It's not well, a that's, gruff rock that, and roll style. That, that's just it, though. They said, like what I was just talking about, remembering the past and continuing yeah, yeah. to respect the past. That's that's what it is. The Khmer Rouge kept their own agenda secret. Sihanouk didn't even know that Pol Pot was their leader. We've gone and spoken a fair bit here about the music and the events. Were you both satisfied as to how John Perozzi presented these events and the order of things and bringing in just little bits of danger in the first half before coming back to the music. Would you have liked to have seen more of any one thing? I think it works perfectly the, the way he's he's structured it and, and as we were saying before the way you know he drops little hints as to, uh, you know the direction things are heading and I think one thing I've taken away from it is I'm going to read up I'm going to do some research I'm going to find out more about what did happen and I think that's something good to take away from this I don't think 
the film would have been better if he'd focused more on the Khmer Rouge regime or if he'd focused less on that. I think he's got the balance exactly right. That he's kind of piqued my curiosity about the music and the, the sort of politics that were going on at the time. So as a result, I'm going to uh, I'm going to read up. I'm going to actually learn some things. That's really great if a film can make you do that. I like the fact that how one thing can lead to the next, like this whole domino effect. I yeah. believe that Matt Parazzi had been working on Matt Dillon's film City of Ghosts. Yeah, he filmed yeah. in Cambodia, and it's only because yeah. he heard the Cambodian rocks album, which I believe is a bootleg actually, but I don't like actually like to use the term bootleg. I'd like to think of it as more like a great collection and archive, if you will. Someone had taken the time to put these songs which have possibly been forgotten by the next generation. And he heard this and thought this is absolutely amazing and decided, right, well I need to investigate this more. So in, in a way, I think that his film was the result of a lot of detective work. I mean, you know, if you were going to make, as you say, Tim, a film about Motown or a film right. about the MC5 or whatever, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of people oh, you yeah. can interview. Whereas this, a lot of the musicians and their collaborators were killed under the Pol Pot regime. And even at the end of right. the film, they go and say, well, we saw this person in this... Actually, yeah, it was, I think Sinsismuth's son was saying, well, I heard from 10 different people that they saw my father in, yeah. in this camp or they saw him in this field and he died under this circumstance and they can't all be right. And maybe none of yeah. them are right. But I think that that's the, the sad thing that you take away at the end of the film. I mean, obviously, besides a senseless murder of one and a half million people because of a ruling ideology, just with the focus of this film on the music is these people who we were smiling along with in the first half because they went and created something wonderful. Yep. The, the relatives, they don't have that closure. They don't know really. They, they presume what no. happened to them, but they don't know under what circumstances. And that's tragedy on like, a large scale and tragedy on a smaller scale. I'm in no position whatsoever to speak for anybody who's Kamai. But just as a visitor, as a, as a mere observer, there's such a weight that is in that country that it's really beyond scale to really comprehend you feel it you feel it and, and the people that are living there to this day they make no bones about what has happened and it is what it is and there's no other way of looking at it you can't deny it you can't over emote the killing fields are not one place there are like dozens and dozens and dozens of places everywhere you go somebody is ready to tell you that there's dead buried here and there's dead buried there and there's dead buried somewhere else and after a while you just have to go with it because if you don't you really can't stay there it's, it's just um, overwhelming but I want to say one thing though and not to downplay in any way whatsoever anything that happened in Cambodia but watching this documentary and just the feeling I got, like I said, about a relationship earlier, this to me in a way is almost like the Tina Turner story. In the beginning, she was making this music and she was free. And it was amazing. And her and her husband, Ike, you know, they really all they were concerned with was just being happy and making music. And then it gets into this situation where she's forced to make music under duress in a violent situation. And it's like, how am I going to get out from under this and still keep myself? And then in the end, you know, she picks up the pieces and she's free and she's left the legacy. And I mean, of course, she didn't die. Again, I'm not trying to, you know, downplay anything that happened in Cambodia. But it, but to me, this whole situation is like a relationship. I really see it. People in Cambodia will tell you the same thing, that there was like a romance in the late 50s and, and in the 60s that turned into this whole nightmare situation where, the, you know, the people that you're supposed to love and trust – that come in under the guise of, of taking care of you, ultimately turn around to uh, be the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And in the end, when you manage to re you know reef your, your way free of it and you pick up the pieces, there's a lot of things that are left behind that unfortunately there's those that didn't get out. But does that make sense, what I'm saying, like about a relationship? I think this is the only podcast where, uh, or possibly the only place ever that... Uh can be likened to a Tina and Ike Turner's relationship. <laughs> Every yeah. podcast has to mark its territory, Bernie.
I think John Perosi did consider how much must have been lost during those years. Many songs, how much recorded music, how much film footage must just not exist anymore. Oh, yeah, because of Year Zero. Um, I mean, they eliminated so much. So it's amazing he was able to kind of find what he did, really. And I mean, it's great that it's, you know, there's stuff still there and we're able to kind of tap into it and appreciate it. I was going to bring up, I'd forgotten that there were those moments where we did see some level of performance footage. And I wanted to know, I mean, were they part of feature length movies, like scenes in movies where there was a band playing or there was something that was film specific? I'm not just like necessarily talking about the Drakkar band footage that you might see later on. There were moments where you would see singing and it just looked like oh, there was performing in a nightclub and it looked like, oh, I wonder yeah, if this is yeah. from a movie or something like that. So, yeah, yeah, good point. One thing that a lot of people don't realize, and I read yeah. this in, in several places, is when people knew that a lot of stuff was going down with the Camera Rouge, a lot of stuff was buried. They actually had time, oh, time, time right, capsules. They kind of hid stuff. Yeah, they yeah. hid stuff. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff that okay. was hid. People buried, like they had lockboxes or there was a lot of stuff that was buried. Well, most of Jeez. it, the majority was birth certificates, land records of people owning farming land but there was a lot of old reels reels of film and reels of uh, recordings and vinyl like like there were things that they did manage to salvage. Yeah, when I was in CM Reap, actually I went to a museum where you could actually still see some of the old things like old music books. I remember <laughs> that they had music books of recordings of traditional Khmer songs and they had vinyl and they had old clothing and a whole bunch of stuff that uh, the museums now are archiving and they're still to this day going through rice fields and they're going through abandoned areas to try to not only find the remains of people that were basically killed by the Cameroos but they're also finding their possessions as well. I was reading this book a few years ago I've forgotten the name of the author but she was doing this investigation into the history of 78 and I think at one point she goes to somewhere in the south I think and learns how to go deep dive so she goes to the bottom of oh, this. Oh, I know. Yes, I've, I've got the same book. I'm pretty sure she was like in a documentary that we all recently watched as well. And she goes to the bottom of this river to see if she can scavenge what was rumored to be a whole bunch of old Paramount 78s. Oh, that was in the one about John Fahey, wasn't it? Amanda Petrusic. That's the one, Amanda Petrusic. The world's rarest 78 RPM records. Mm. That's the one, isn't it? Yes, go. yes, that's, a, that's the one. And I just find it interesting that where there's a love and passion for your culture the depths to what people will do to try and preserve it and that's what she was attempting to do there and just coming back to your point Tim about even in the post Pol Pot Cambodia love of music and culture and wanting to preserve there's that mentality that they want to go out and find these old records or old music books and with the wonderful work that John Perozzi has done to do his detective work so Westerners can at least get even just the tip of the iceberg as to how thriving this culture was. When my friend Gary lived there, and when I was there for the two weeks, we kind of bombed around pen on pen, and we went around CM Reap looking for the old music. And the only thing we were able to find was some of these guys who were laughing at us, asking us, like, why do you want that? And then they'd pull out these old CDRs and blow off some dust. And they were like these bootleg, these uh, cellophane wrappers that would be like a a laser printed cover. And And it was almost like buying some demo disc or demo CD or something. And a lot of it was old Kamai wedding music. Some of it was a little bit of rock and roll, but to try to find the real deal, they didn't have any record stores anymore in Penham Pen and CM Reap. Like to modern people, the past is the past. I mean, the young kids—they're more interested in Lady Gaga and Drake or whatever. You know, like they're not into that. 
because I mean, like to us, that still seems like within yeah. you know our lifespan. But when you really look back at it, we're talking about you know almost a hundred years ago now. Like, well, what, sixty, seventy years ago? Yeah. So yeah, it's a lifetime ago for uh, young kids, isn't it? It's two right. lifetimes ago. Right. So yeah. you can't really expect them now to glom onto that. Even though it brings us together to do uh, this every month, the internet just makes we're all one big global mush now and we all have access to everything from everywhere so tradition i think is is a harder thing uh was harder and harder to maintain tradition because of that you know but yeah. it also allows for those people who do want to have traditions maintained to put it out there and say hey check this out there's something that oh yeah yeah modern recording techniques and and was part of another time but this film is not just about the music but it's about how these people experienced it, how much they treasured it. We can only sort of like appreciate it as a group of terrific songs, whereas the people who lived it were growing up with it. You know, I mean, you might remember growing up in Branford or in Bath or me here in Melbourne, the first time you heard a particular song and what right. was happening in your life. You have that lived experience. And for the, the people who were living under Prince Sihanouk at the time, they remember, right, I was doing this at the time or this is what was happening in my backyard at the time. Nowadays, mm-hmm. we, it, it's still great to have the music and we can appreciate it on an intellectual level and we can even appreciate it as a great piece of music, but it becomes an artifact yeah, well, in a way. It's not the same. Right. kind of almost sense memory almost of music and carry. A different thing, yeah. yeah. I think the music, it's a matter of faith. These people that, you know, recorded all these songs in the 50s and 60s knew that their lives would eventually come to an end. And they had to have the faith that, well, if I see something in this music that I'm recording and making, then maybe down the line somebody else will see something in the music that I recorded and made. And if they do, great. That's fantastic. If they don't, they don't. But you put it out there into the ether and it flies. It's like a paper airplane. Either it soars or it doesn't. I mean, but there's nothing that you can be around to see the resonating effects of what you've done. And and that's the kind of power of this music is that there's a lot of garage enthusiasm. I know they get into the Kamai garage rock stuff because, you know, just for the novelty of it. But when you really look at the significance of what, like you're saying, what it meant to these people and the fact that a lot of them are not around to see the resonating effects of it, to me, like, that's pretty profound. That Cambodian rocks album really could be released legitimately and called Cambodian Nuggets because that's what it is. You know, just these great 60s rock and roll artifacts and and, and they're just nuggets. They're, They're gems. Of, exactly uh, of music and these people's experience i'd love to see somebody like a cambodian alan lomax you know what i mean <laughs> absolutely well i mean well in a, in a way john Perozzi has probably come as close as there would yeah. be to yeah. Uh, yeah to an alan lomax although he's doing it once again from a westerner's perspective but it's someone with deep empathy i guess i oh, look i'd really hope that someone would trawl through as and much as there is out there i want to make a statement right here and right now for as long as we've been doing the show see here and if you're hearing this for the first episode or you, you, you've listened to all of them or whatever, I don't want to be presumptuous. I implore anybody who listens to our show to see this film, to find this film, because I think this is one of the most relevant films that we've covered yet. Mm. This one and the one that we did, like I said, about the John Fahey film. Two the Trains, trains Running. running. Yep. Two Trains Running. Yeah, those two films to me, this and Two Trains Running are the two most, to me, important films that we've covered today. Right. Well, this film is available either on iTunes or if you're a member of a public library, and we'd like to hope that you are, then you should join Canopy.com. Canopy, for those of you who don't know, is a streaming service, free streaming service. All they ask is that you're a member of a public library and you register via your library card, and it's available in some parts of the world on Canopy.com. The film is out there and easily accessible for you to watch. And yeah, I 100%, two thumbs up, definitely go search this out. You'll find some new favorite musicians and new favorite singers these songs are great some are based on western songs actually there was probably a moment where i I, know, I teared up a little bit just sort of hearing towards the end of the film forgotten the name of the singer shame on me who does her interpretation of you've got a friend And 
it's interesting that she does it partly it, in Khmer and partly in English. Right, when he's reading the letter about the man who sent him the letter, the American ambassador. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. That, that moment yeah, in the yeah, film yeah. absolutely tore my heart out. Absolutely, from all three of us. We wholeheartedly recommend this film. You owe it to these people, like the people that are unfortunately, because of political circumstance, no no longer able to basically speak for themselves, and the survivors as well who went through such a hellish traumatic experience, and now they still have the liberty to listen to the music that they created and that other people can appreciate the music they created. I think that if you really love music, you owe it to yourself, like I say, to see this movie and to seek out some of the Khmer Cambodian music because even the traditional music is fantastic. All of it mm-hmm. is wonderful. Yep. Get the soundtrack. Cambodian Rocks is available in its entirety on YouTube if you want to hear it that way, probably on Spotify, uh, I imagine. On, uh, I was going to say, they're, they're both on Spotify as well, certainly in the UK, so... That's big wholehearted recommendation for Don't Think I've Forgotten Cambodia's Lost Rock and Roll from the See Here team. So just quickly talk about next month. No, it's this month. We're releasing two episodes this month. It's June 2019. So episode 65. Unfortunately, Tim and Bernie aren't going to be able to be a part of it because of the timing for this. But I'll be joined by my good friend, Paul Ryan. Not that Paul Ryan. Local script writer, great friend of myself and the show. We're going to be doing an interview with a Australian film director Gillian Armstrong. You may know her from a whole range of films. She's made some stuff in America, redid Little Women probably. Her most famous film is her debut, My Brilliant Career. But we're going to be talking to her about her second film, came out in 1982 as a big hit in Australia, a film called Starstruck. And I know a few people have gone and said, you do a music film podcast, why don't you talk about Starstruck? Well, we're doing it. So very, very excited to be speaking to Gillian Armstrong about that film. That'll be episode 65 out later this month. And what else? If you wish to join our Facebook group, then you can join us at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here, S-W-H-E-A-R. We're on Spotify. We're on Stitcher. You can download us from the website seehere.podbean.com. You can email us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. And we're on Instagram as well, seeherepodcast, all one word. Mm-hmm. Any new photos up? Uh, there will be in the next five minutes or so. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So now having done this, having covered this film, and once again, huge thanks to you, Tyler Kennedy, for making that suggestion. We have now cleared our backlog of requests for 2018. So given that we're halfway through the year, maybe we'll leave it till 2020 before we open the lines up for requests on the Facebook page. But having said that, if you have a request, just put it through. We're, we're pretty laid back about that sort of stuff. Oh, speak to you guys offline as to what we're going to be doing in July of 2019 so I'll give that game away I gotta, I gotta say something right now. Immediate announcement: Rocky Erickson has just passed away. Oh what? No, you're just saying that now. Yeah, he just passed away. Oh Oh, jeez. Oh man. Well, we can't cover the Rocky Erickson story for July 2019 because we've already done that, but please go back listen to that episode yeah yeah some elevators records yes absolutely here's here's to the two-headed dog oh man way to keep it up uplifting (laughs) at the end of the show tim thanks cheers all right well (laughs) go back and listen to cambodian rocks go back and listen to uh some 13th floor elevators just celebrate music it's all wonderful and uh until episode 65 all the best cheers cheers thanks rocky sleep tight It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 